I will be reading chapter one from the book Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. My father's family name being Perup and my Christian name, Philip. My infant tongue could make of both names nothing longer or more explicit than Pip. So I called myself Pip and came to be called Pip. I gave Perip as my father's family name on the authority of his tombstone and my sister, Mrs. Joe Gargery, who married the blacksmith. As I never saw my father or my mother, and never saw any likeness of either of them, for their days were long before the days of photographs. My first fancies regarding what they were like were unreasonably derived from their tombstones. The shape of the letters on my father's gave me an odd idea that he was a square, stout, dark man with curly black hair. From the character and turn of the inscription, also Georgiana, wife of the above, I drew a childish conclusion that my mother was freckled and sickly. To five little stone lozenges, each about a foot and a half long, which were arranged in a neat row beside their grave and were sacred to the memory of five little brothers of mine who gave up trying to get a living exceedingly early in that universal struggle. I am indebted for a belief I religiously entertained that they had all been born on their backs with their hands in their trouser pockets and had never taken them out in this state of existence. Ours was a marsh country, down by the river, within as the river wound, 20 miles of the sea. My first, most vivid and broad impression of the identity of things seemed to me to have been gained on a memorable raw afternoon towards the evening. At such time I found out for certain that this bleak place overgrown with nettles was a churchyard and that Philip Prep, late of this parish and also Georgiana, wife of the above, were dead and buried and that Alexander, Bartholomew, Abraham, Tobias, and Roger, infant children of aforesaid, were also dead and buried, and that the dark flat wilderness beyond the churchyard intersected with dikes and mounds and gates, with scattered cattle feeding on it, was the marshes and that low laden line beyond was the river, and that the distant savage lair from which the wind was rushing was the sea, and that small bundle of shivers growing afraid of it all and beginning to cry was Pip. Hold your nose, cried a terrible voice as a man started up 
from among the graves at the sight of the church porch. Keep still, you little devil, or I'll cut your throat. A fearful man, all in coarse gray, with a great iron on his leg. A man with no hat, with broken shoes, and with an old rag tied around his head. A man who had been soaked in water and smothered in mud and lamed by stones and cut by flints and stung by nettles and torn by briars who limped and shivered and glared and growled and whose teeth chattered in his head as he seized me by the chin. Oh, don't cut my throat, sir. I pleaded in terror. Pray don't do it, sir. Tell us your name, said the man, quick. Pip, sir. Once more, said the man, staring at me. Give it, Mo. Pip, Pip, sir. Show us where you live, said the man. Pint out the place. I pointed to where our village lay on the flat inshore among the alder trees and pollards, a mile and more from the church. The man, after looking at me for a moment, turned me upside down and emptied my pockets. There was nothing in them but a piece of bread. When the church came to itself, for he was so sudden and strong that he made it go head over heels before me, and I saw the steeple under my feet. But when the church came to itself, I say, I was seated on a high tombstone, trembling, while he ate the bread ravenously. You young dog, said the man, licking his lips. What fat cheeks you got. I believe they were fat, though I was at the time undersized for my years, and not strong. Darn me if I couldn't eat him, said the man, with a threatening shake of his head, and if I hadn't had the mind to it. I earnestly expressed my hope that he wouldn't, and held tighter to the tombstone on which he had put me, partly to keep myself upon it, and partly to keep myself from crying. Now looky here, said the man, Where's your mother? There, sir, I said. He started to make a short run and stopped and looked over his shoulder. There, sir, I timidly explained. Also Georgiana, that's my mother. Oh, he said, coming back. And is that your father along, along your mother? Yes, sir, I said. Him too, late of this parish. Ha, he muttered then, considering. Who do you live with? Supposing you're kindly let to live, which I haven't made up my mind about. My sister, sir. Mrs. Joe Gargery. Wife of Joe Gargery, the blacksmith, sir. Blacksmith, eh? he said, looking down at his leg. After darkly looking at his leg and me several times, he came closer to my tombstone, 
took me by both arms and tilted me back as far as he could hold me so that his eyes looked most powerfully down into mine and mine looked most helplessly up into his. Now looky here, he said, the question being whether you're to be let to live. You know what a file is? Yes, sir. And you know what Whittles is? Yes, sir. After each question, he tilted me over a little more so as to give me a greater sense of helplessness and danger. You get me a file, he tilted me again. And you get me whittles, he tilted me again. You bring them both to me, he tilted me again. Or I'll have your heart and liver out, he tilted me again. I was dreadfully frightened and so giddy that I clung to him with both hands and said, If you would kindly please to let me keep upright, sir, I shouldn't be sick and perhaps I could attend more. He gave me a most tremendous dip and roll so that the church jumped over its own weathercock. Then he held me by the arms in an upright position on the top of the stone and went on in these fearful terms. You bring me tomorrow morning early that file and them whittles. You bring the lot to me at the old battery over yonder. You do it and you never dare say a word or dare to make a sign concerning your having seen such a person as me or any person some ever, and you shall be let to live. You fail, or you go from my words, in any particular, no matter how small it is, and your heart and your liver shall be tore up, roasted, and ate. Now, I ain't alone, as you may think I am, there's a young man hid with me. And in comparison with which young man, I am an angel. That young man hears the words I speak. And that young man has a secret way, peculiar to himself, of getting at a boy and his heart and his liver. It is in vain for a boy to attempt to hide himself from that young man. A boy may lock his door, may be warm in bed, may tuck himself up, may draw the clothes over his head, may think himself comfortable and safe, but that young man will softly creep and creep his way to him and tear him open. I am keeping that young man from harming of you at the present moment with great difficulty. I find it weary hard to hold that young man off of your inside. Now, what do you say? I said that I would get him that file and I would get him what broken bits of food I could and I would come to him at the battery 
early in the morning. Say, Lord, strike you dead if you don't, said the man. I said so, and he took me down. Now, he pursued, you remember what you undertook, and you remember that young man, and you get home. Good, good night, sir, I faltered. Much of that, he said, glancing about him over the cold, wet flat. I wish I was a frog or an eel. At the same time, he hugged his shuddering body in both of his arms, clasping himself as if to hold himself together and limped towards the low church wall. As I saw him go, picking his way among the nettles and among the brambles that bound the green mounds, he looked in my young eyes as if he were eluding the hands of the dead people, stretching up cautiously out of their graves to get a twist upon his ankle and pull him in. When he came to the low church wall, he got over it like a man whose legs were numbed and stiff and then turned round to look for me. When I saw him turning, I set my face towards home and made the best use of my legs. But presently I looked over my shoulder and saw him going on again towards the river, still hugging himself in both arms and picking his way with his sore feet among the great stones dropped into the marshes here and there for stepping places when the rains were heavy or the tide was in. The marshes were just a long, black, horizontal line then as I stopped to look after him and the river was just another horizontal line, not nearly so broad nor yet so black and the sky was just a row of long angry red lines and dense black lines intermixed. On the edge of the river I could faintly make out the only two black things in all the prospect that seemed to be standing upright. One of these was a beacon by which the sailors steered like an unhooped cask upon a pole, an ugly thing when you're near it. The other is a gibbet with some chains hanging to it, which had once held a pirate. The man was limping on towards this ladder as if he were the pirate come to life and come down and going back to hook himself up again. It gave me a terrible turn when I thought so. And as I saw the cattle lifting their heads to gaze after him, I wondered whether they thought so too. I looked all around for the horrible young man and could see no signs of him. But now I was frightened again and I ran home without stopping. And that is the end of chapter one from the book Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. I wish you sweet dreams and good night.